Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. By God's grace, we're going to make an attempt to get through the whole chapter today. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we acknowledge uh, the depth of our need. We acknowledge the fact that we so often are not as grateful as we ought to be. We know that you are patient and kind to us in our weakness. We ask that you might minister to us here today through your word. We pray that you might uh, help us to see its sufficiency, help us to uh, conform ourselves to what we read today, and that we would um, just long after the truth that's given to us in Scripture. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are, as I mentioned, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and today's passage really represents a shift in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, In order to uh, get our bearings just a little bit, uh, you might remember that uh, we identified Paul's letter to uh, the Corinthians, his first letter here, uh, as an occasional letter. It was prompted uh, based on specific occasions, specific things that were going on in the church. Uh, What we saw from this was that there is not necessarily one uh, unifying uh, theme to the letter as much as it is he moves just from topic to topic, uh, from this to that. He addresses a concern here and a concern there, a question here and a question there. Uh, The first four chapters have really primarily been about one main topic that he was addressing, and now he is shifting on to a different topic. Uh, The first four chapters, the topic he was addressing was disunity in the church. And as we began to trace out that theme, we saw that the reason for all of the disunity going on in this local church was because they were embracing the wisdom of the world. And we said uh, rather pointedly, worldly wisdom divides and godly wisdom unites. That has been the recurring theme for chapters 1 through 4. But now there is a shift that takes place in Paul's writing because uh, as this occasional letter is uh, fleshing itself out, he's moving on to a different topic now. He's talking about something else going on in the church. Uh, And and one of the, the textual clues that we have to this is in chapter 5 and verse 1, you have the word reported. It's actually reported. And so he is dealing with various reports that he has received in, uh, from the church. And so that is what he's going to be dealing with in chapter 5 here uh, today. The report has to do with, uh, as we will see here in just a moment, has to do with sexual immorality. The entire chapter, chapter 5, is devoted uh, to this topic. I think uh, today's passage, uh, of course all scripture is, but today's passage is highly applicable to our modern day culture uh, because if anything, our present culture has increasingly defined itself by its sexuality. Uh, Carl Truman, uh, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, explains how we got to where we are today. What are the Uh, cultural assumptions that have been made, how is it that our culture thinks the way that it thinks today, and he really puts a lot of emphasis on how Freud 
got us to where we are today, particularly in the way that we think about sexuality. I'm going to read to you just a little bit of a section from his book. He says this, Freud has, in fact, provided the West with a compelling myth, not in the sense of a narrative that everybody knows is false, but in the sense of a basic idea by which we can understand the world around us, regardless of whether it is true in the common sense way of understanding the word. That myth is the idea that sex, in terms of sexual desire and sexual fulfillment, is the real key to human existence, to what it means to be a human. Nobody looking at Western society today could fail to see how sex dominates the culture in a way unknown to our ancestors in the Middle Ages or the early modern age. From art to politics, sex is omnipresent. And thinking of human beings as fundamentally defined by their sexual desire is now virtually intuitive for us all. We are categorized as straight, gay, bi, queer, and so on. And sexual preferences, once considered private and personal, are now matters of public interest, uh, means by which we are recognized by the world around us. And this makes the task of tracing the origins and nature of the sex myth an important part of understanding the modern self and the modern world. Truman says that if you want to understand the modern world, the modern culture, the way that we are, or why we are the way that we are, the way that people think the way they think, he says you have to understand Freud, and that Freud defined uh, us and our desires in completely sexual terms, and that actually it goes beyond that. Your self-identity is inextricably tied to your sexuality, whatever that might be, as more and more variations of this are coming out every day. And so this is, uh, I think, in many, uh, one of the, the main reasons why uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is going to be so applicable to our modern day culture, because he's spending the entire chapter talking about sexual morality, a topic that we as a culture here in America have uh, really become obsessed with in tracing it out in what we would say as Christians, all of its uh, perversions, rejecting really the goodness that God has given to us in this particular area. Um, he is going to end, by the way, this chapter, 1 Corinthians, of talking about purging this particular sin from our midst as Christians. And so let's go ahead and just dive right into the passage. Uh, as I said, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter here. <clears throat> so 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since, you, uh, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or as an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Really, we're going to look at this section or this this, uh, chapter in four different sections. Uh, We're going to see the sin in verses 1 through 2 response in verses 3 through 5, the theological principle in 6 to 8, and then a clarification uh, in the last few verses. In verses 1 through 2, we see uh, really a description of the sin that's going on. It begins with a clear statement of this sin that has plagued the church in Corinth. This sin is, of course, sexual in nature. And interestingly enough, it is the kind of sin that even the pagan and wicked Corinthians don't engage in themselves. Uh, keep in mind that this is a very stinging rebuke for these people because as we know, the Corinthians were engaged in some pretty severe and serious sins. And Paul says, even they are not doing this. In verse 1, we read, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now, there has been a lot of ink spilled over trying to get an exact uh, detailed description of what is precisely going on here. Uh, A lot of it, I think, for the most part, is uh, a lot of speculation. We really only know what's been given to us in these couple of verses here. Um, I will say that it is probably uh, very unlikely that this woman, that this man has, It's unlikely that this woman is his mother, since Paul probably would have said uh, a man has his mother. Uh, It probably is, uh, because he specifically says his father's wife, probably his stepmother is what's going on here. And again, a lot of the speculation around this centers around what's the reason for this particular union uh, that this man and woman were seeking out. Some uh, think that it was motivated out of financial greed. Uh, They would say that the stepmother was probably rich and the father died, and the only way the son could keep all this money for himself was if he had this relationship with this woman and that would keep the money for himself. Others believe that it was more out of uh, his lust that he had for this woman. Uh, Some think that he seduced his stepmother or that the father divorced her or the father died. All of this stuff is speculation. We just don't know. We just know what's been given to us uh, here. All we do know is that they are specifically engaging in a sin that the Old Testament specifically forbid. Leviticus 18 verses 7 through 8 says, "...you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father." Uh, which is the nakedness of your mother. She's your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. Uh, Deuteronomy 22.30, a man shall not take his father's wife. Deuteronomy 27.20, curse be anyone who lies with his father's wife. 
And so clearly the Old Testament had given uh, laws about not engaging in this particular kind of sin. Uh, But really, I think the situation is almost worse than this because the man who is sinning was endorsed by the church at Corinth. Uh, If you look at 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 2, he says, you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be mourning? Shouldn't you be grieved by this? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The Corinthian Christians were arrogant and they were proud that they were tolerating this kind of sin. Now, what would make a Christian proud to tolerate sin? I mean, what, 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 what would happen in a Christian's mind to come to the conclusion that as a church, we are going to tolerate and accept any kind of a sin, particularly this kind of a sin. We, we, we are going to uh, endorse this, tolerate this. We're going to become arrogant and proud and boastful. I mean, when Paul says they were arrogant and that they were proud, I mean, what, what, what was going on? I mean, are they, are they talking? Other people, look, 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 at, look at how bad this particular sin is here in the church. And I think um, the reason that they were tolerating this and bragging about this and becoming arrogant uh, is uh, what, what most individuals uh, think is uh, a distorted view of God's grace. I mean, you could imagine as um, wrong as it would be to come to this conclusion, I'm sure you can imagine the Corinthians saying, Christ forgives. He forgives this person. His grace covers this. So go ahead and indulge and and continue to sin in this particular manner. A distorted view of God's free grace. I think it's probably, uh, hopefully, easy to imagine someone coming to that conclusion. Not hopefully easy to imagine it, but I think we can imagine that because so many churches today do take that particular position. We see so many uh, professing Christians who would make those same conclusions that, well, because God forgives, uh, he's not so concerned about my behavior. Uh, I have Christ and that's all that I need. I think uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 uh, certainly would be a verse that many today might even claim uh, would, would allow this kind of behavior. It says, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God, I'm sinning more and more and more and more, which means God's grace is abounding more and more and more and more. So what should I do? I should keep sinning more and more and more and more and more. And this is... Uh, Again, a distorted view. In fact, um, if we were to go on and read Romans 5 uh, and get to the end and then go into Romans 6, Paul explicitly says, should we sin so that grace may abound? And what does he say? He says, God forbid. God forbid that we would do that. These Christians, uh, I think, are under the false belief that because God's grace abounds in sin, that they should tolerate increasing amounts of sin. So, we're going to have more of God's grace because we're going to be more sinful. Than the, and there's a competition. Who can be the most sinful church? And we're going to have more of God's grace. This is, um, uh, I think, a representation of what we're going to call the libertine spirit in the Corinthian church. So you have uh, this libertine mentality 
I think a similar term that we would use today would be to call these folks antinomians. And uh, those of you who are with us in our study on the whole Christ understand what this term means. The term antinomian simply means that we have cast aside the law. We don't need, obedience is no longer relevant. It's no longer important for us. Uh, God accepts us as we are and we can do whatever we want. And he continues to accept and embrace and endorse us. The word uh, libertine actually is used one time in the Bible. Uh, In Acts chapter 6 and verse 9, there are uh, translations that do translate it that way. The ESV translates it as freedmen. Uh, And it says this, some of those who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen or uh, the synagogue of the libertines and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now this group of libertines or this group of freed men were part of the group responsible for stoning Stephen. Um, At a basic level, libertine is a term that refers to those who are liberated, who are free. Uh, The word, according to the dictionary, means someone who is liberated in their thinking. We might call this person a free thinker. Uh, A couple of definitions from the dictionary. I don't think I have these on the screen today. But uh, a free thinker, especially in religious matters, is what libertine means. Or a person who is unrestrained by convention or morality. I don't have any restraints Uh, morality and religion doesn't restrain me. I'm a libertine. I'm a freed man. Uh, As a noun, it means a person who is freely indulgent in sensual pleasures or a free thinker in matters of religion. And as an adjective, characterized by free indulgence in sensual pleasures or free thinking. Uh, So a libertine, uh, an antinomian, a free thinker, someone who's been liberated or free from the restraints of Scripture. That's what we're talking about. I think um, another term uh, that would probably be pretty close to parallel today and a term that maybe more of you would be familiar with would be a term where former Christians describe themselves sometimes as deconstructionists or they say, I'm in a process of deconstructing. Uh, A very famous or well-known example of this, I think probably most of you are aware of this particular situation, would be Joshua Harris and his wife, um, who are now separated. Um, They, uh, I actually, for quite some time now, have followed them. uh, And I think it would be appropriate to say that a lot of things that they are saying are very libertine. Um, in, uh, in, in their thinking. They have been, quote-unquote, freed from the restraints of religion. And interestingly enough, the freedom that they have been expressing uh, is a freedom that, that uh, takes form in their views on sexual expression. They talk a lot about their bodies and their sexuality. Uh, they are libertine. They are deconstructing. They are antinomian. They are free of all of the shackles and the restraints 
that religion imposes upon us. Um, libertines or free thinkers or deconstructionists are typically reacting to what they perceive to be a lifeless and blind following of the rules. Everywhere they look, they see legalism. It's legalistic. That's legalistic. That's legalistic. That's legalism. Legalism there. Legalism there. Legalism there. Um, <clears throat> we must remember, though, as we have observed many times, that libertine freedom or libertine thinking or antinomianism is never the cure to legalism. And this is one of the things that we brought out several times in our study in the book on the whole Christ. And if you have not read that book, I would really encourage you to read through that book. Um, but one of the things that becomes very clear and very evident is that both the, the sin of legalism and the sin of antinomianism, both, both of these particular expressions, or you can call it this deconstructing view and this legalistic view, both of these responses to Christianity are sourced in the same problem. They just have different wrapping paper on them. In the one case, the legalistic thinker is taking God's person from his law and they're peeling those apart from one another and say, I can obey the law without regard for God's person. I, I, I'm, I'm, just give me the list. Just give me the rules. Just tell me what I got to do. And we're good. And then on the other hand, you have the libertine thinker does the same thing. They separate the law of God from the person of God. But they just go into the other ditch and say, I can love the person and God's law doesn't matter. God's rules doesn't matter. God's word doesn't matter. And so many times you see someone who comes perhaps from a very legitimately legalistic church. They try to fix that problem by going all libertine, by going all antinomian, by going all deconstructed. I, just, I'm sick of the rules. I do whatever I want. And ironically, they have failed to escape the grasp of the thing that they were trying to escape. They're still sinning in the same way. It just looks different with different wrapping paper. And this, I think, is really what's going on here. You, you, and, and, and this part, you know, uh, maybe a little bit of speculation, but perhaps we can speculate that these Corinthian Christians are, are sick of all the rules, they, they, they look at perhaps Judaism, they look at other Christians, and then they hear God's free grace, and they're saying, forget that. And they have not been able to escape the clutches of the very thing that they despise so much. They're still sucked into it. Antinomianism, we would say, is legalism in disguise. But more to the point, in our present passage, we can see how this kind of thinking can really push us to indulge in all sorts of sins. They had elevated, the, the church at Corinth had ele elevated tolerance to a virtue. We're going to tolerate everything. All of it. All of it's fair game. And oh, you're sinning in this way? We're really going to tolerate you and, and exalt you because of what sin you're engaging in. Tolerance, I would suggest, 
is a virtue among the libertines. Tolerance is a virtue of the antinomians. Mark that down. The libertines, the antinomians, the free thinkers, or the people who are sick and tired of all the rules are the ones who want to lift up tolerance and say, we're going to tolerate everything. It all goes. The Corinthians are being rebuked by Paul for their tolerance. He tells them in verse 1, this sin is not even tolerated among the pagans. They should not have been tolerant of this man's sexual expression. They should have been intolerant of it. They should have said, enough of this. Instead of tolerating his sin, they should mourn. They should be grieved. And Paul is very straightforward and he tells them, you have to remove this man from your midst. They should exercise church discipline. Tolerance for sin is not a virtue. And the only response for sin within the church is to deal with it. And Paul explains this in the next couple of verses, verses 3 through 5, where he gives his response. Beginning in verse 3, he says, Though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul says he's with them in spirit, and he has already pronounced judgment. Based on his knowledge of this situation, he tells them, you have to deliver this man to Satan. What in the world does that mean? Can you uh, deliver this guy uh, to Satan for me today, please? Uh, what are you saying? <laughs> what, what, what in the world is going on here? Uh, I want to read to you one other passage where Paul says the same thing. We have one other uh, New Testament passage where Paul speaks of delivering someone over to Satan. And this is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 18 uh, through 20. He says, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus, Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So what does it mean to hand someone over to Satan? How are we as a church? Somehow this is intertwined in church discipline. Uh, how are we to do this as a church, to hand someone over to Satan? What does this look like? Well, in all of the various views uh, on what's going on here, uh, the, the um, common denominator, the view that uh, basically I think practically everyone would hold to is at a minimum, if this means nothing else, this means that he should be excommunicated out of the church. He should go through church discipline. Uh, that's kind of a, a good first base. And then others would expand upon that. Uh, and, and maybe uh, make other claims about what that uh, might mean. But really, uh, I, I think, um, and I would say that I don't think it means any more than this. I, I think this is what it means. Uh, when you're talking about handing someone over to Satan, 
you are putting them outside of the church is what this is referring to. Now, why, uh, why, why would this mean that? Well, if you were to put someone outside of the church, which is to say you put them through church discipline and say you are no longer a part of this church, you are placing them outside of the umbrella of God's safety and security on this present world, which is the church, and you are putting them into Satan's realm, so to speak. First uh, John five nineteen verifies this for us because we read this. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, the world out there is Satan's realm, so to speak. Of course, we would understand that this is not somehow uh, undermining God's sovereignty. We know that God uh, is in the heavens and does all that he pleases. Um, We know that if you want to talk about Satan and Satan's authority in the situation with Job, uh, Satan had to have permission from God to act. And so Satan is under God's thumb. Um, And yet the Bible also refers to the fact that the world out there is kind of like Satan's realm. And so to hand someone over or to deliver someone over to Satan is to say, you're not part of this church anymore. You have no umbrella. You have no safety net anymore. You're not protected anymore. You're out there where Satan is free to roam, so to speak. He then goes on further to say that the purpose of this is for the destruction of his flesh. Again, another hotly debated topic. What does this mean? It could refer to physical destruction so that he will physically die. Uh, It could refer to some spiritual refining process. But whatever it is specifically, Paul's intent is restoration, not ultimate and final destruction. We know this because the verse concludes by saying what? So that what? What does the verse say? Look down at it. So that you guys follow along while I'm preaching through the Bible? Okay, good. (laughs) So that his spirit might be saved. So this, whatever is going on, and as we may have debates back and forth about what does it mean to deliver to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, the ultimate purpose is remedial. It is restoration that he would come back. We see the same idea in church discipline in Matthew 18. We, we, we understand that church discipline is not, ha look, we're better than you. Church discipline is but for the grace of God, there go I. Please come back to us. We love you. Um, so that his spirit might be saved. While some communities might view, quote unquote, shunning as a permanent disposition or something they have to work out of by penance, We're going to shun you as a community until you do enough penance. Then you can be right with us as a church again. The Bible's view of this is totally different. The Bible's view is that this would be um, for their restoration, to draw the person back quickly. Um, What's going on here is that you are essentially thrown out of the world with no cover and no protection. And I would just add here as maybe a little bit of a side note, um, a very small rabbit trail here. If 
being cast out in church discipline and to be put out into the world is to be put in Satan's realm for the destruction of their flesh. What does this say about the person who willingly keeps himself from the church? What, what, what does this say about the person who says, I'm going to hold the church at arm's length? What, what does this say about the person who says, I'm just going to get, I, I, I just, I'm going to be a spectator. I don't want to be part of, I'm going to be one foot in and one foot out. What does it say about that person? That person is willingly of their own initiative toying with Satan's realm of removing themselves from underneath this umbrella and saying, I'm going to willingly be out here where I'm not protected, where I'm unsafe. To borrow the words of this passage, the person who uh, puts themselves out of the church, we would say they, uh, that, that you deliver yourself to Satan for the destruction of your flesh. Instead of doing this, delivering ourselves over to Satan, and instead of sinning in such a way that the church has to do this, we are to embrace the church to love the church, to be part of the church, and to put off sin. Why? Because the church and the life of the Christian is a life of celebration, which is the theological principle Paul gives to us in the next few verses. He says this, your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, for you really are uh, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate. This is a really hard passage, and he's talking about celebration here. Let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Leaven, of course, represents evil in the Bible. When you add a little leaven, it expands uh, and it goes throughout the whole thing. So the Corinthian church should take action against this little leaven on this sinning member so it doesn't spread and grow to the whole church. And the reason for this um, is in verse 7 where he says, you really are unleavened. In other words, Christians really are positionally holy. This is, a, this is an interesting statement. You're sinning, you're sinning, you're sinning. You really are unleavened. What does that mean? If leaven represents sin in the Bible, when he says you really are unleavened, he's saying you really are without sin. Positionally speaking. Remember we started off with this in 1 Corinthians? There's going to be a difference between our practical righteousness and our positional righteousness. As believers... If you are here today and you have repented and trusted in Christ as your savior, you are wearing the righteous robes of Christ and you are positionally speaking perfectly sinless in God's sight. You really are unleavened. You're unleavened. You have Christ. Now, practically speaking, we got to work some of this stuff out. 
You see, that's, the, that's what he's going on here. He's talking about their Christian identity. Get rid of the leaven, get rid of the leaven, get rid of the leaven. Why? Because you really are unleavened, positionally speaking. You, you, you really are righteous in Christ. Because Christians are positionally holy, therefore we should pursue, pursue practical holiness as well. Um, I'll say it this way. And this phrase taken out of this context could mean something really bad, okay? But I'm going to say, be who you are. And I don't mean that in the way the world uses that. I mean that in the way that, that the Bible teaches it. Who are you? You are in Christ. You are practically, uh, or you, you are positionally holy. You are justified. You are righteous. So be that. How do you be that? By putting off your sin. By pursuing Christ. Be who you are in that sense. Not be who you are in your flesh, which is how the world means it. But be who you are practic- or in, in Christ, positionally. You are in Christ, therefore act like it. Instead of engaging in antinomianism like this church did, we are to recognize that there is something worth celebrating in Christianity. You really are unleavened. Guess what? Let us celebrate the festival. Isn't there so much that we have to be thankful for in Christ? Isn't there so much that we have to rejoice over and to celebrate? I'm reminded of G.K. Chesterton who said, The true soldier fights not because what he hates is in front of him, but because what he loves is behind him. Um, we often hear that as Christians, uh, we are to put aside all of this talk about what we're against and actually start talking about what we're for. And this passage does that for us, actually. In fact, this passage does both. And I would say, let's do both. This passage says, we're against this, all this sin, and we're for this, the celebration. We're for the fact that we really are unleavened, that we really are in Christ. And so Christianity addresses both of these particular issues. We are as Christians against all of this and we are for all of this and we rejoice so much because of what we have in Jesus Christ. This festival, by the way, again, more speculation here on this. There's a few things challenging to understand in this particular passage. What is the festival? It probably is really kind of the Christian life as a whole. The rejoicing that we have to experience because we are in Christ. The joy that comes when I fight sin and am victorious over it because of God's effectual grace working in me. And in order to do this celebration, we need to put off sin. But in order to make his point effective, he has to clarify one more thing before he moves on. And that is in the final verses, verses 9 through 13, where we see this clarification take place. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 
God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Now, Paul is clarifying something that he wrote to the Corinthians in a previous, now lost letter. He clarifies that we cannot stop associating with every sexually immoral unbeliever. Because if we did that, we would have to leave the world. There is no way that we are going to avoid contact, uh, work relationships, so on and so forth with every unbeliever. Christian isolationism is not the answer. This is what Paul is clarifying for us here. If, we, if what Paul meant was don't ever uh, brush shoulders with anyone who sins in any way, then we would have to just leave the entire world. Plus, if we did that, we would have no evangelism opportunities, right? How are we going to evangelize the world if we leave the world? What Paul is telling us here is that if you have a professing believer engaged in sexual sin, or any expands it here by saying a professing greeter who is unrepentant in their greed, they're an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, a swindler, he says, don't associate with that particular person. He even raises the bar and says, don't even eat with that person. Jesus ate with sinners. What are we going to do with this? How, how, how are we going to bring these together? How can Jesus eat with sinners and yet we are not to eat with sinners? Well, <clears throat> because of the specific nuance Paul is stating here. Paul is saying, if there is someone in your church who professes Jesus Christ and lives in unrepentant sin, don't tolerate that. Because if you tolerate that specific person, what you are doing is you are communicating that holiness is irrelevant to God. We we expect the world to act like heathens. The church should not be characterized by that. The church is not responsible for the behavior of people outside of the church. That's what 1 Corinthians 5.12 says. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside of the church you are to judge? We should plead with our unbelieving neighbors... But that, that's outside of our realm of judgment here in, in terms of what Paul is talking about in the passage. Someone starts engaging this behavior in the church, we deal with it. And so he's making a distinction here. The professing believer who is living in continual unrepentant sin is communicating, I can be in a right relationship with God without holiness, without obedience. The unbeliever doesn't do that. The unbeliever acknowledges they don't need God. But the professing believer in this case acts like a lifestyle of unrepentant sin is compatible with God's holiness. In fact, uh, on the antinomian theme, some would even say it's compatible with or or it's it's complementary of God's holiness. I do the sinning and God does the forgiving. Let's keep that up. (laughs) 
And of course, that's a lie, we know. He concludes by uh, quoting Deuteronomy 17 and verse 7, uh, where we read this. Uh, the hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Israel was responsible to purge evil from their own midst. Christians in the church are responsible to do the same. This should, by the way, tell us something very profound. This quotation from Deuteronomy 17 communicates something very interesting about the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament. It is a popular belief today that the God of the Old Testament is a harsh God, and the God of the New Testament is this affirming, soft God. This verse communicates that there is tremendous unity and agreement between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Both Testaments are concerned with the purity of God's people. He, he doesn't say that was something for the Old Testament. You purge people back there, but here we're just all tolerant and affirming. He doesn't say that. It's the same thing. He, in fact, quotes the Old Testament to make that claim. Both Testaments are concerned with the purity of God's people. Both the Old and the New Testament care about carving out a people for God that are distinct and so, because of this reason, for many today, the old, this passage might feel a little bit Old Testament-ish. And that's because it is. The Old Testament fingerprints are all over the New Testament. <laughs> Read the New Testament. It's everywhere. So, where does this leave us today? God is concerned about the holiness and purity of his church. Sin is no more acceptable in the New Testament than it was in the Old Testament. In a world full of tolerance, the Bible exhorts us to take heed to the spiritual temperature of our local church. Look to yourself and put off your sin. Here are some things that we can say. We can say God forgives me of my sin. We can say God's grace abounds when I sin. We can say Christ offers freedom for sinners. We can say that no sin is too great for God to forgive. We can say that legalism is a sin and a distortion of God's law and God's person. And this is part of, I think, the festival that we are to celebrate, that God is so rich and abounding in grace and love and forgiveness and mercy. Here's what we cannot say. Therefore, it doesn't matter how I live. We can't say that. This is what the Corinthian church was saying. They forgot that God still really cared about holiness, not because he's a cosmic killjoy, but quite the opposite. God says no to the sin and the wrong because there is an abundance of yes in the Christian worldview. There is so much that God has created. Just go look outside and look at a sunset just one fraction of the abundance of yes and goodness and delights and pleasures that God has given to us. We are to obey for the right reasons. We are to obey because the, thus saith the Lord. We are also to obey in order to make room for the celebration that involves the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What is different 
is that God has given us new hearts in order to help us obey. God tells us that he gives us new hearts in Ezekiel 36 verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. God causes us to obey. He helps us. Divine help, divine joy, all from the Lord. Let us be the kind of people that put off sin, that confront others in sin, that seek to live holy lives in order to cleanse out the old leaven so that we can celebrate the festival, as this passage reminds us. Four points of application. Number one is this, forsake all forms of sexual immorality. And they're abundant today. Number two, forsake the false promise of libertine freedom because it's not real freedom. It's more bondage with a different label on it. Number three, avoid Christian isolationism. That's not the answer either. The answer is not to go hide in a hut and never talk to another soul again because we have people that we need to point to Christ and confront sin. Where do we get the power to do this? The passage in front of us gives us the clue. He says, you really are unleavened. This is who you really are. The power to fight sin comes from knowing who you are. When we know who we are in Christ, we are enabled to act like it. So let us run to him. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us and for your mercy. We pray that you would help us now, that we might find great delight in the gospel and in Christ We thank you for your faithfulness to us. In Christ's name, amen.